You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and today on the podcast, Peter Werby, journalist and now novelist, has a new book out on black and red books. It's called Summer on Fire. It is a Detroit novel. It's a mix of history and inventive remembrances that's recreating six weeks in the very intense summer of 1967. Riots, rock and roll, shootings, marches, and bomb plots shake Detroit, reminding us that today's turmoil is a mirror of that era. Now, Peter Werby has been a member of the Fifth Estate Magazine's editorial collective and writing for that magazine for a long time. Also, in the broadcast journalism world, his professional career included hosting WRIF's Night Call, which was the longest-running talk show in radio history. He was also a DJ on Detroit rock stations like WCSX, WABX, and WWWW. And we're going to be linking to where you can find more information about this book, which came out in early March. And of course, that information is at peterwerby.org. The temperature is scorching in Detroit during the summer of 1967, and so is everything happening in this fictionalized memoir by a staff member of the long-running underground newspaper, The Fifth Estate, Fifth Estate Magazine. And this is talking about the episodes of 1967, the Detroit Rebellion, there's anti-war demonstrations, the characters are fighting fascists, there's rock and roll at the Grandy Ballroom, there is the White Panther Party, the Black Panther Party, drugs, anarchism, and uh, so much more. We don't want to spoil too much or give away the ending, but we are very grateful to have Peter Werby here on the podcast today to talk about this new book, Summer on Fire. Here's our chat. This book is uh, is is out now, right? On Black and Red Books, it, it, you've, it's officially come out into the world. Here we are. It came out March first, yeah. and it's almost gone. Yeah, no, I mean this is uh, scary. Yeah, I don't. We're we're having some trouble getting it uh, reprinted quickly, but they're out at the bookstore. I mean, people can still get them at the bookstore. The summer that is uh, eponymous, eponymously referenced, "Summer on Fire," is summer of 1967. And before we got on mic, you and I were talking about how we obviously know that the Detroit Rebellion of late July happens within this summer. Your book is about a wide span of time in the summer, uh, not exactly explicitly about the Detroit Rebellion, although that is sort of the peak at about halfway through the book. But I have to imagine that, yeah, a lot of interest is in, you know, hearing especially your take on on those, you know, insane four or five days of of time. And especially since you were you were right there. But first of all, tell our listeners that this is a novel. It's, It's fictionalized, but it is a lot of history is in here, too. How did that work when you were creating it? Okay, I thought you were going to ask the two questions I dread the most. What's the book about, <laughs> and why, why did you write it? So right. that's 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 a, like a hint uh, for later. So the book is Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel, and it's seven weeks in uh, the summer of 1967, as you said. Um, and uh, it, I mean, it's a strange. Um, and I'm stumbling here mm-hmm. because it, it's such an odd bird for me. I've never written fiction before at all, not short stories, not poems, nothing. I've been a a writer with the Fifth Estate Magazine and Metro Times and other national publications, but never wrote a book of fiction. So um, uh, was I in the middle of it? Uh, That's what the character was in the middle of it. But uh, was I? Was the fictional 
main character, Paul, Paul Ross, was he, uh, he was in the middle of it, but was I? Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was. And people see a lot of resemblance between me and the main character and my wife, Marilyn, who is Michelle. And someone said, well, if you didn't want it to think it was you and Marilyn, uh, Peter and Marilyn, don't you think you could have called them something else other than uh, Paul and Michelle? Right. Uh, but, um, you know, people, people often say, well, did this really happen? Did that really happen? And I say, it's sort of like asking a magician, you've just seen a trick and you say, how did you do that? So I would say that the history of the actual events are done with great precision, at least to the best of my ability. The fiction, it was grabbed memories here, other people merged uh, events, uh, amalgams of personality, because it is fiction, because I wanted to give a sense of the period and bring up some questions about the legitimacy of violence. I mean, what, uh, what happens when you have a system that, that extends its racist uh, definitions on for such a long period of time. So you can, e you can either take everything in that as autobiographical, uh, everything in it as fiction, or split the difference, or not care. And I, whether or not every single thing is exactly accurate, I had told you just before we started recording about how emotional this book got me, specifically because I was, I was sort of resonating with the aggravation of of Paul and Michelle, especially against this. You know, there are several several abuses of authority throughout this book that are sort of part of the narrative, and then. You know, you must have an, you must have anticipated before starting page one that this book may or may not have been reactivating those emotions in you, having, you know, not lived through it exactly like Paul, but lived through it. You were, did you find yourself getting also well bugged about in, it? In in the most dramatic part of it, although there are other you know events that are uh, disturbing that are related in um, uh, Summer on Fire. It. it I think in a lot of ways I suppressed them. I mean, living through them. I mean, how do you think about it? how do you? Uh, I mean, if you, you or I were in actual battles, you know, in Iraq or Vietnam or World War II, I mean, doesn't it occur to you upon thinking of it? I couldn't deal with five minutes of someone shooting at me. Well, everybody that was there did, and actually, the worst emotional um, responses came after they were home. What they called shell shock during. Uh, uh, World War One or PTSD now, and so I think during the they were happening, I mean, they were, we were so energized by believing that world revolution, on one hand, in the age of Aquarius was uh, possible, was uh, going to happen, that this empire that we were in was uh, had committed such uh, foul deeds throughout its entire history, and seeing no none none of the good parts at all, mm -hmm. I have to say, we pretty much suppressed it. And I, at one point when I uh, wrote about a very famous incident, the Algiers uh, Motel incident, where three cops executed uh, three teenagers, three children, and when you get to be my age, um, that, that uh, when I finished it, I said, why am I doing this? It, it made me so ha unhappy. Mm -hmm. it, it had the, the feeling uh, that I, well, I, I shouldn't say I get the feeling, but I don't see movies like Detroit, which was the cinematic depiction of the Algiers Motel, or you know, Twelve Years a Slave, or uh, or any of those, they make me so angry and they make me so depressed that I, I mean, I know enough about it, you know, from the history I've read. 
So I finished the part on the Algiers Motel, and I didn't write again for three weeks. And I said, this is nonsense. You know, uh, I, I shouldn't say that's a bad word. Not, not nonsense. It didn't make sense for me to do because, it, you know, it was making me unhappy. But then after a while, I thought, okay, it, that's over. Let's uh, continue on. I mean, a lot of the events in there. I mean, so a lot of it, since, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give it away. Some of it is autobiographical, or at least has an autobiographical uh, root to it. And I enjoyed recounting them. Yeah? And partly, <laughs> I don't know if this is fair. I, I mean, a lot of them um, were enhanced. So the experience was actually better than what I actually experienced. But the book uh, created emotions in me as well. And, and I was worried that uh, someone that wasn't even close, and I'm making an assumption about you, that wasn't even close to being born in the summer on fire, the summer of 1967, uh, when that occurred, um, how they would um, react to it. Although then I realized, you know, people read books about the Civil War or, you know, stuff like you know, World War II, or any, any historic event, and those, those same emotions about... Uh, war and violence and love and you know one's ethical responsibilities those are present through all periods truly truly i believe that you write about the rebellion as a spasm of rage against centuries of racism and whether i was there or whether the readers of of any age were there for this summer of 1967 there have been i've i've seen some blurbs or some reviews saying that there's resonance for the summer of 2020 people in the streets well sure so that was geez, 54 years ago, mm -hmm. and um, all the problems are solved, huh? No, well, obviously not. It's funny, in many ways, there's been such progress made, but it's almost like racism is making a, a final last-ditch stand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess, I mean, it was so amazing, uh, Black uh, Lives Matter, that uh, last summer, that it was, it was the largest social movement in the history of the world and dwarfed anything that came out against the Vietnam War, of which Summer on Fire is uh, a lot about as, as well. And, and, uh, and, and one was heartened both by seeing the, the participation of people of color. And um, I, don't, I don't know what this says about me, but I was almost uh, one, one did that. Uh, if, if, if someone was a black person, a person of color, they acted out of necessity to demand equal rights, to demand uh, freedom from the fear of the, 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 the might of the, the state, to demand uh, human dignity. They had to do it. White people that participated in this, um, we, we could have kept our same old role saying tisk tisk and continued to enjoy the benefits of white privilege. But for instance, I went to a lot of demonstrations. I went to a lot of them in Detroit where I was a minority, which is not unusual for me. I went to Detroit schools and I was always uh, in white people in the minority in the schools that, that I went to. But I also went to a lot in the suburbs, in Birmingham. And, and in Pleasant Ridge, there was one last June. And there were 200 white people, all I'm sure, pretty sure from looking at middle class and above, walking down the main residential areas of Pleasant Ridge with, I think, maybe three Black people, young people who are leading it, actually, in the crowd, chanting Black Lives Matter. I don't think Pleasant Ridge has ever had a demonstration about anything, let alone. But, I mean, that's, that's a testament to the ethical outrage that white people, that great numbers of white people 
are expressing. And I think that is you know, really heartening. That is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. There, I mean, obviously, there's a reason we call it systemic racism that, that's going to still take <laughs> yeah. a while. But I, I share in your optimism, hopefully, hopefully that, that, that we are seeing the last gasps, but we'll never. Even a wounded dragon, a dying dragon, still has a powerful tail, yep. you know? Yep. So we, we, uh, we have to remain engaged. Mm-hmm. I'll sneak my way into asking, hopefully not a uh, cliche question, not the two that you, that you don't want to be asked, but, you know, your, your career in journalism and writing and radio, we, we get up to 2016, the end of Night Call. How about not why you wrote this book, but when did you decide you would write this book? How long have you been wanting to write this book? When did the feeling really sort of first form? Well, as uh, someone who did interviews, geez, was it that long? For almost uh, 50 years, for 46 years, from uh, 1970 to, uh, to 2016 on WRIF's Night Call, um, I would say always ask your guests questions that make them uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so why did I write it? You know, it's sort of lost in the history because when I someone said, well, if you want to write a novel, it should be between 60 and 80,000 words. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, I write articles that are 1,400 words. Right. And I said that to a friend of mine. He said, you can write 1,000 words a day. I said, yeah. He said, well, less than three months. Right. You have it done. But, um, it, you know, it's it's somewhat of an arrogance to write a book and think it's going to be published because there's a number of friends of mine that are excellent writers and better writers than I that either can't find publishers or they have very, very small publishing imprints that wind up, they wind up selling 75 books, something uh, like that. And one of the things when people tell me, they say, well, it's, oh, it's such a great story. Let's publish this. I say, well, how are you going to distribute it? And who, who, do, you think you're, who do you think is going to uh, buy it? I took a chance in that I had this residual recognition of um, who I was and, and what I stood for and believed in, in my radio audience. And I thought, well, you know, I bet there's a lot of my pals, too, that would like to see this. And at one point, we thought about running maybe 200 books and what have you. And then finally, we said, OK, let's uh, let's go crazy and print a thousand. Now, maybe even that doesn't sound like a lot because the Fifth Estate publishes quarterly and it's 5,000 issues. Uh, when I would broadcast, I'd be broadcasting to 20,000. I'm thinking a thousand. That's not very many. But for books and for small, you know, imp- imprint uh, books, I mean, that's considerable. I mean, that's generally at Wayne State University. Harvey Oshinsky, my pal and who has a memoir out now called Scratching the Surface, Wayne State did a thousand of uh, his as well. And we are all but out of the books um, and are facing a crisis in that it's going to take us two months with our printer to get it uh, reprinted. So I'm dodging the question about why <laughs> I, uh, or why I wrote it. Um, it, it, I'm not even sure. That's why I said, uh, I hope you didn't ask me because it, I just had an idea from one of the incidents that my sister told me and uh, I just started writing and then it just all came out and it didn't, it didn't come out a thousand words a day. It would come out some days and sometimes for many days, not at all. I mean, there wasn't anybody waiting for it. So it probably from the time I started writing to when it actually we sent it to the printer was probably about 14 months uh, or, or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not sure what it's about. 
I mean, it is it, it is these interconnected, or maybe it is just a description of the, the you know, it's called the Summer on Fire, Detroit novel, and it's uh, centered in seven weeks that goes from the last day of the t- uh, Six-Day War in the Middle East to uh, just coincidentally, this this r- really happened uh, coincidentally on August 6th, which is Hiroshima Day, which I didn't even realize, but uh, but it's dated, in you know, throughout it, and it just happened, and, and and a lot of it just happened. Writers I know, Black and Red, the publisher, publishes a lot of book, a lot of books by Freddie Perlman, and he wrote a book called The Straight, and uh, it's about you know Detroit, Detroit, and um, about and it's set in the early 18th century. Uh, the interaction between the native people and the invaders, uh, that would be us. And he had these large sheets of paper on which everything was schematically put out. The characters, who they were, their function, the story, everything. I just started writing and just all just came down. And at one point, uh, I finished and I said, okay. And I don't know what even made me think, well, maybe I'll write a little more and finish it a little differently. And um, uh, and then I wrote and I wrote and I'm thinking, I don't even want to write. And it was like it just kept coming out of my fingers. It almost sounds like a writer's cliche. Oh, the characters wrote the book or <laughs> the book wrote itself. But I had that feeling to the point one night I went to bed and I thought, that's I don't want that. I don't want to leave it. And I got downstairs. And I said, I'm going to change it. And these characters are just all standing there akimbo, you know, with their uh, you know, hands on their hips saying, uh, nope. This is it. This is how we're ending your book. And, uh, and they were right. Yeah. So uh, it, it wrote itself uh, in many ways. Maybe. And, yeah. yeah sorry, go ahead. Well, maybe are you, we were talking about soldiers being a bit shell-shocked after war, the, the idea of coming back from it. Again, when you say summer of 67 and you say Detroit, people will think of late July. That's where their minds will go. But you let these characters live for a few weeks after that. And maybe you're, you were exploring just how they were. I guess, reacting and going on with their lives, if at all. But, you know, they do some traveling. They go to the Grandy Ballroom. Well, that, I didn't, you know, someone told me, a very good uh, published author whose books uh, are published by Simon & Schuster. And she said, you know, you've got a good story. She said, but this uh, reads like a Fifth Estate article uh, with some dialogue uh, put in the Fifth Estate is a uh, what is it now? 55-year-old radical was newspaper, very active during the 1960s. Now it's a quarterly magazine. And I said, thank you. She said, I didn't mean that as a compliment. And I said, well, I the book is the way I want it. And not on one hand, you could say it's, it's arrogance or stupidity to not listen to someone who is this well thought of, incredible writer who's I I couldn't even come near her abilities. Uh, in this, but it is exactly what I wanted. I wanted the characters in there, and uh, you know, have a little fun with them. Uh, have you know some of the cultural stuff, and uh, and I mean, she was okay with that. But I don't think she wanted uh, the history. This people probably know. Maybe they'll say, well, I don't think I'm going to read it. The history of draft resistance during World War One. But if it's coupled with the draft resistance of the 1967 and how people related to the local draft board and harassing the local draft board clerk, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a little it's a little more easy to take. And hopefully it's not, uh, you don't have to take it. Hopefully they'll go, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. And some of the stories I wanted to tell in there, 
when there's a, a trial of some of the people for for what happened during an anti-war um, uh, march during motive in the book June 1967, and the people who go down to the old recorder's court, they, there's a trial on the way out, uh, and, and this is not a spoiler. The lawyer uh, says uh, this is where the ocean, uh, the ocean sweep uh, trial took place, and everybody looks at him blankly. Well, that is such an incredible event in 1925, and I wanted to tell that story. And I don't care if people wonder whether I drove a motorcycle high on LSD to the Grandy Ballroom and interacted with Janis Joplin. It may or may not tell you whether that actually happens. Uh, but uh, really, I would want them to say, you know, I remember Werby in Summer on Fire wrote about this Ossian sweep thing, and they look it up. In fact, my book has footnotes. If you go to my website, peterwerby.com, and you can see Kevin Boyle's book called Arc of Justice, and I can't remember the long subtitle, and it's all about the Ossian sweep trial where Clarence Darrow comes in at the behest of the NAACP to defend this man who's accused of, of defending his home and killing a white man way back uh, way then. And that's what I want them to remember, you know, um, that, that, that kind of material. I appreciate that about the book. There are, there are a few chapters that take us out of 1967 and jump back to other, to other timelines for historical context. Like, did you, did you know the Ossian Sweet trial at all? I, in my history class in high school, you know, we spent a day on it, maybe. It really? Was maybe That's certain... excellent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. My, you know what? I would have been most pleased if you would have said, no, I learned about it here. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but, listen, most people know about the Detroit Rebellion. And it, I was sort of fearful that people would say, oh, no, is he going over that again? And, you know, I know all about it. I know about the Algiers Motel. But I think it has... Um, it engages the characters. Oh, you know, one thing, let me, let me go back to what I did. And, and I always stuck telling the truth, which I suppose is good. Um, and this is the truth uh, that uh, you said, oh, wait a minute. Let's look at, oh yeah. Yeah. About the characters going to the Grandy ballroom and then going on the road. I didn't do this intentionally. My brother-in-law, who is the absolutely smart guy, he was talking about how it, it, it out, uh, how it, it uh, I don't want to say exposed, it, it, it showed uh, white privilege. So right at the beginning, and again, this is not a spoiler, um, at least a little, uh, the characters in the book, they see, wow, oh, there's a riot breaking out, and they all leave for West Bloomfield to someone's parents' house. The, the people directly affected by it, the, the black people of Detroit and around that area couldn't do it. And then it's over, and, and it's like, phew, all right, let's go on a road trip. Um, let's go to the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Maine, and you know, an island off the coast of uh, of uh, Maine. Mm-hmm. So it it with without even um, thinking about it. But I mean, and that's that's the way I think. You know, I think of myself as someone who's very conscious about racism, its history, all of that. And yet, um, I, I wrote that just as part of telling a story. What white people did without really meaning it as a teaching moment. And it actually, in a way, taught me. So I learned a lot from this book myself. There's a lot of scenes that are vividly described as characters just trying to sleep at night with gunfire outside or sleep at night knowing that army soldiers 
literally back from Vietnam are just right outside on their sidewalk. So while some of those white folks did escape, and as I told you, my parents were up in the burbs watching from a distance, that audience, the white audience reading this book, gets to live there night after night through through your retelling. So it gets back to what I was saying earlier about just uh, uh, men being in battle. Mm-hmm. The same thing. After a while, you know, you just quote got used to it. There were right. checkpoints everywhere. You know, tanks and armored personnel car- uh, uh, carriers and soldiers everywhere, cops everywhere. And um, I mean, most of the killing. I mean, there are forty in order to restore. Uh, law and order and commerce, commerce, the National Guard and the police uh, killed, I don't know, they didn't kill all 43, but at least about 39 of the 43. Um, and if you weren't involved in um, you know, looting, if you weren't uh, out after the curfew, uh, you had a pretty good chance of uh, not being harmed. And there is a point where myself and another, and I really do want to leave this vague, uh, venture into that area and are threatened, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, the the office of the Fifth Estate newspaper uh, was uh, attacked with uh, with a um, with a device, yeah. which I will also believe is a right. teaser. Right. No spoilers. Uh, what what this what I think this novel is able to achieve is whereas the the film twenty seven the twenty seventeen Detroit film may you know i've never seen it myself so i'm speaking a bit ignorantly and just with a, like a vague knowledge of it but it my my worry would be that that film was a bit exploitative whereas your book if i can say so potentially becomes this sort of exercise and an ethical question if i were in the shoes of each of these characters and some of the altercations that they get into or some of the marches that they go to or some of the motives of anyone else in their circle and what they want to do and all it, just in any of the, uh, again, aggravations that they sort of come up with when they're confronted by authority figures, this sort of ethical question of what what would I do? Where would I stand? I think that's what I loved about your book. You know, and I don't think you ever, uh, you don't get a chance to really think about it a long time. So, you just yeah. do it. And it's partly uh, your character. Yeah. Just the other day, or maybe was it was yesterday, when that man attacked that Asian woman on the street and was kicking her in the head. And some of the people in that the place just closed the door. I want to, you know, the guy that did it was a big guy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a particularly big guy. I don't know. You, you know, you don't look like a mixed no. martial arts no. guy yourself. What do you do when there's uh, an, an angry six foot two, you know, 200 pound guy attacking somebody? You mm-hmm. know, you jump on his back, maybe. Then his rage turns on you. I don't. I don't know. And I think it's instinctive. I think a lot of people apparently just stood there. Um, and uh, you know that that. I mean, that goes back, God, into the 1950s. There was a famous case, Kitty Genovese, where she was being, I think, somehow killed, and she was screaming, and, and every all the neighbors just shut their windows. So, the Good you know, Samaritan what is, Law. What, what does one do? I mean, a lot of people said, yeah, when the violence starts, I'm out of there. The characters in Summer on Fire, I mean, they always head right into the breach. There's a big anti-war march, and the, the characters uh, there are the most radical, the most militant, and most uh, likely to attract trouble both from the right wing and from the police. So one say, well, why did I, why did I um, uh, center on them? You know, well, I don't know. What would you tell? You know, uh, uh, Paul and Michelle marched down from Wayne State University to Kennedy Square, holding a sign saying, uh, "Get out of Vietnam." Well, and uh, you know, I mean, where, where's the where's the action, right? right. 
And that that comes back, you know, you mentioned that that case in the 50s in New York, that Good Samaritan law, and we mentioned some of the things that these characters come into and where you put the reader. It it's again, it's finding resonance again today because we have it's in the news, the the off-duty firefighter who was present at the George I, Floyd death. So these conversations are coming up again of, of what we do when when all this insanity happens right in front of our face. And again, summer on fire. These are heated moments, if you'll allow me to to use a cliche. It is. It's fiery, Peter. Yeah. It's very fiery. Well, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, with the, I guess, uh, the, a philosophy I've adopted. I don't, you know, I don't know. If I say I'm an existentialist, I should be wearing a black turtleneck sweater and a beret, right? A beret. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he talked about without without God you know without a, a, a that standard everything falls on you and the choices you make are universal choices so what you do you're choosing for everyone if you commit a dishonest act you're affirming dishonesty right if you defend the weak that that is a it becomes a universal uh, property if you do nothing you know in the face of evil well then uh, that allows evil to exist not saying you're always going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Things don't look like they're going in a good direction, even though, you know, if you say, "Are you hopeful for the future?" Say, depend on you know what day I wake up. Peter, it's been so good to chat with you. I guess I'll just leave on one note. I could always say journalist. I could say broadcast journalist. What if I said novelist? Okay. The book is Summer on Fire, and the Ferndale Library is going to be adding it as soon as I as soon as I can get that going. I promise you on Black and Red Books, Detroit-based publisher, and great to talk with Peter Werby. Thank you so much, sir. Sure, and you can go to Peter Werby, W-E-R-B-E.com. There's footnotes. There's a soundtrack there as well. Excellent. We'll have that link in our show notes, of course. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Joe. And that was our chat with Peter Werby, journalist and now author of this new book, Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel. Send you over to his website for more info, peterwerby.org, where I will attribute this quote about the book, A People's History and Radical Folklore of Detroit. The setting of this book is seven weeks in a critical summer, critical year that demands ethical choices by all involved, as you will see if you get a chance to read this book. And of course, we highly recommend it. Summer on Fire by Peter Werby. We thank him for joining us, and we thank you for listening, as always, to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and the music you're hearing at the beginning and end of the show is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this chat, please share it to social media. If you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend about it. And if you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate that as always. Thanks for listening.